0: This is section 129 of Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain, section 129, The Galaxy, April 1871 Memoranda by Mark Twain My First Literary Venture Valedictory I have written for the galaxy a year. For the last eight months, with hardly an interval, I have had for my fellows and comrades, night and day, doctors and watchers of the sick. During these eight months death has taken two members of my home circle and malignantly threatened two others. All this I have experienced, yet all the time been under contract to furnish humorous matter once a month for this magazine. I am speaking the exact truth in the above details please to put yourself in my place, and contemplate the grisly grotesqueness of the situation. I think that some of the humor I have written during this period could have been injected into a funeral sermon without disturbing the solemnity of the occasion. The memoranda will cease permanently with this issue of the magazine. To be a pirate, on a low salary, and with no share in the profits of the business, used to be my idea of an uncomfortable occupation but I have other views now. To be a monthly humorist in a cheerless time is drearier, so much by way of explanation and apology to the reader of any obtrusive lack of humorousness that may have been noticed in my humorousness department during the year. At last I am free of the doctors and watchers, and am so exalted in spirits that I will cut this final memoranda very short, and go off and enjoy the new state of things." i will put it to pleasant and diligent use in writing a book i would not print any memoranda at all this month but the following short sketch has dropped from my pen of its own accord and without any compulsion from me and so it may as well go in as i shall write but little for periodicals hereafter it seems to fit in with a sort of inoffensive appropriateness here since it is a record of the first scribbling for any sort of periodical I ever had the temerity to attempt. I was a very smart child at the age of thirteen—an unusually smart child, I thought at the time. It was then that I did my first newspaper scribbling, and, most unexpectedly to me, it stirred up a fine sensation in the community. It did indeed, and I was very proud of it, too. I was a printer's devil." and a progressive and aspiring one. My uncle had me on his paper, the weekly Hannibal Journal, two dollars a year in advance, five hundred subscribers, and they paid in cordwood, cabbages, and unmarketable turnips. And on a lucky summer's day he left town to be gone a week, and asked me if I thought I could edit one issue of the paper judiciously. Ah, didn't I want to try! Higgins was the editor in the rival paper. He had lately been jilted, and one night a friend found an open note on the poor fellow's bed, in which he stated that he could no longer endure life and had drowned himself in Bear Creek. The friend ran down there and discovered Higgins wading back to shore. He had concluded he wouldn't. The village was full of it for several days, but Higgins did not suspect it. I thought this was a fine opportunity. I wrote an elaborately wretched account of the whole matter and then illustrated it with villainous cuts engraved on the bottoms of wooden type with a jackknife one of them a picture of higgins wading out into the creek in his shirt with a lantern sounding the depth of the water with a walking stick i thought it was desperately funny and was densely unconscious that there was any moral obliquity about such a publication being satisfied with this effort i looked around for other worlds to conquer and it struck me That it would make good interesting matter to charge the editor of a neighboring country paper with a piece of gratuitous rascality and see him squirm i did it putting the article into the form of a parody on the burial of sir john moore and a pretty crude parody it was too then i lampooned two prominent citizens outrageously not because they had done anything to deserve it but merely because i thought it was my duty to make the paper lively Next I gently touched up the newest stranger, the lion of the day, the gorgeous journeyman tailor from Quincy. He was a simpering coxcomb of the first water, and the loudest dressed man in the state. He was an inveterate woman-killer. Every week he wrote lushy poetry for the journal about his newest conquest. His rhymes for my week were headed to Mary in H L." meaning to Mary in hannibal of course but while setting up the piece i was suddenly riven from head to heel by what i regarded as a perfect thunderbolt of humor and i compressed it into a snappy footnote at the bottom thus we will let this thing pass just this once but we wish mr j gordon Runnels to understand distinctly that we have a character to sustain and from this time forth when he wants to commune with his friends in H. L he must select some other medium than the column of this journal. The paper came out, and I never knew any little thing attract so much attention as those playful trifles of mine. For once the Hannibal journal was in demand, a novelty it had not experienced before. The whole town was stirred. Higgins dropped in with a double-barreled shotgun early in the forenoon. When he found that it was an infant, as he called me, that had done him the damage, he simply pulled my ears and went away, but he threw up his situation that night and left town for good. The tailor came with his goose and a pair of shears, but he despised me too, and departed for the south that night. The two lampoon-citizens came with threats of libel, and went away incensed at my insignificance the country editor pranced in with a war-whoop next day suffering for blood to drink but he ended by forgiving me cordially and inviting me down to the drug store to wash away all animosity in a friendly bumper of fanstock's vermifuge it was his little joke my uncle was very angry when he got back Unreasonably so, I thought, considering what an impetus I had given the paper, and considering also that gratitude for his preservation ought to have been uppermost in his mind, inasmuch as by his delay he had so wonderfully escaped dissection, tomahawking, libel, and getting his head shot off. But he softened when he looked at the accounts, and saw that I had actually booked the unparalleled number of thirty-three new subscribers, and had the vegetables to show for it cordwood cabbage beans and unsalable turnips enough to run the family for two years the galaxy april eighteen seventy one memoranda by mark twain about a remarkable stranger being a sandwich island reminiscence on second thoughts i will extend my memoranda a little and insert the following chapter from the book i am writing it will serve to show that the volume is not going to be merely entertaining but will be glaringly instructive as well i have related one or two of these incidents before lecture audiences but have never printed any of them before m t i had barely finished when this person spoke out with rapid utterance and feverish anxiety oh that was certainly remarkable after a fashion but you ought to have seen my chimney you ought to have seen my chimney sir smoke (laughs) humph i wish i may hang if. Mr. Jones, you remember that chimney? You must remember that chimney. No, no, I I recollect now. You weren't living on this side of the island, then. But I am telling you nothing but the truth, and I wish I may never draw another breath if that chimney didn't smoke so that the smoke actually got caked in it, and I had to dig it out with a pickaxe. You may smile, gentlemen, but the high sheriff's got a hunk of it which I dug out before his eyes, and so it's perfectly easy for you to go and examine for yourselves." The interruption broke up the conversation, which had already begun to lag, and we presently hired some natives and an outrigger canoe or two, and went out to overlook a grand surf-bathing contest. Two weeks after this, while talking in a company, I looked up and detected this same man boring through and through me with his intense eye, and noted again his twitching muscles, and his feverish anxiety to speak. The moment I paused, he said, "'Beg your pardon, sir, beg your pardon, uh, but it can only be considered remarkable when brought into strong outline by isolation. Sir, contrasted with a circumstance which occurred in my own experience, it instantly becomes commonplace. No, not that, for I will not speak so discourteously of any experience in the career of a stranger and a gentleman.' But I am obliged to say that you could not, and you would not ever again refer to this tree as a large one, if you could behold, as I have, the great Yakmatak tree, in the island of Ounaska, sea of Kamchatka—a tree, sir, not one inch less than four hundred and fifteen feet in solid diameter, and I wish I may die in a minute if it isn't so. Oh, you needn't look so questioning, gentlemen here's old cap saltmarsh can say whether i know what i'm talking about or not i showed him the tree captain saltmarsh come now catch your anchor lad you're heaving too tout you promised to show me that stunner and i walked more than eleven mile with you through the cussedest, aggravatingest jungle i ever see a hunting for it but the tree you showed me finally weren't as big around as a beer cask and you know that your own self marcus hear the man talk of course the tree was reduced that way but didn't i explain it answer me didn't i didn't i say i wished you could have seen it when i first saw it when you got up on your ear and called me names and said that i brought you eleven miles to look at a sapling didn't i explain to you that all the whale ships in the north seas had been wooding off of it for more than twenty-seven years and did you suppose the tree could last forever, confound it? I don't see why you want to keep things back that way, and try to injure a person that's never done you any harm." Somehow this man's presence made me uncomfortable, and I was glad when a native arrived at that moment to say that Mukawau, the most companionable and luxurious among the rude war-chiefs of the islands, desired us to come over and help him enjoy a missionary whom he had found trespassing on his grounds. I think it was about ten days afterwards that, as I finished a statement I was making for the instruction of a group of friends and acquaintances, and which made no pretense of being extraordinary, a familiar voice chimed instantly in on the heels of my last word, and said, "'But, my dear sir, there was nothing remarkable about that horse, or the circumstance either—nothing in the world.' I mean no sort of offence when I say it, sir, but you really do not know anything whatever about speed! Bless your heart, if you could only have seen my mare Margareta! There was a beast! There was lightning for you! Trot! Trot is no name for it! She flew! How she could whirl a buggy along! I started her out once, sir! Colonel Bilgewater! You recollect that animal perfectly well. I started her out about thirty or thirty-five yards ahead of the awfulest storm I ever saw in my life, and it chased us upwards of eighteen miles! It did, by the everlasting hills! And I'm telling you nothing but the unvarnished truth when I say that not one single drop of rain fell on me—not a single drop, sir! And I swear to it! But my dog was a-swimming behind the wagon all the way. For a week or two I stayed mostly within doors, for I seemed to meet this person everywhere, and he had become utterly hateful to me. But one evening I dropped in on Captain Perkins and his friends, and we had a sociable time. About ten o'clock I chanced to be talking about a merchant friend of mine, and without really intending it, the remark slipped out that he was a little mean and parsimonious about paying workmen. Instantly through the steam of a hot whiskey punch on the opposite side of the room, a remembered voice shot, and for a moment I trembled on the imminent verge of profanity. "'Oh, my dear sir, really you expose yourself when you parade that as a surprising circumstance. Bless your heart and hide, you are ignorant of the very A-B-C of meanness, ignorant as the unborn babe, ignorant as unborn twins. You don't know anything about it.' it is pitiable to see you sir a well-spoken and prepossessing stranger making such an enormous pow-wow here about a subject concerning which your ignorance is perfectly ghastly look me in the eye if you please look me in the eye john james godfrey was the son of poor but honest parents in the state of mississippi boyhood friend of mine bosom comrade in later years heaven rest his noble spirit he is gone from us now John James Godfrey was hired by the Hay Blossom Mining Company in California to do some blasting for them—the Incorporated Company of Mean Men, the boys used to call it. Well, one day he drilled a hole about four feet deep and put in an awful blast of powder, and was standing over it ramming it down with an iron crowbar about nine feet long, when the cussed thing struck a spark and fired the powder, and scat! Away, John Godfrey whizzed like a sky-rocket, him and his crowbar. Well, sir, he kept on going up in the air higher and higher till he didn't look any bigger than a boy, and he kept going on up higher and higher till he didn't look any bigger than a doll, and he kept on going up higher and higher till he didn't look any bigger than a little small bee, and then he went out of sight. Presently he came in sight again looking like a little small bee and he came along down further and further till he looked as big as a doll again and down further and further till he was as big as a boy again and further and further till he was a full-sized man once more and then him and his crowbar came a whizzing down and lit right exactly in the same old tracks and went to ramming down and ramming down and ramming down again—just the same as if nothing had happened. Now, do you know, that poor cuss war not gone only sixteen minutes, and yet that incorporated company of mean men docked him for the lost time." I said I had the headache, and so excused myself and went home. And on my diary I entered. Another night spoiled by this offensive loafer— and a fervent curse was set down with it to keep the item company and the very next day i packed up out of all patience and left the islands almost from the beginning i regarded that man as a liar the line of points represents an interval of years at the end of which time the opinion hazarded in that last sentence came to be gratifyingly and remarkably endorsed and by wholly disinterested persons the man marcus was found one morning hanging to a beam of his own bedroom the doors and windows securely fastened on the inside dead and on his breast was pinned a paper in his own handwriting begging his friends to suspect no innocent person of having anything to do with his death for that it was the work of his own hand entirely yet the jury brought in the astounding verdict that deceased came to his death by the hands of some person or persons unknown. They explained that the perfectly undeviating consistency of Marcus's character for thirty years towered aloft as colossal and indestructible testimony, that whatever statement he chose to make was entitled to instant and unquestioning acceptance as a lie and they further stated their belief that he was not dead, and instanced strong circumstantial evidence of his own word that he was dead, and beseeched the coroner to delay the funeral as long as possible, which was done. And so, in the tropical climate of La Haina, the coffin stood open for seven days, and then even the loyal jury gave him up. But they sat on him again, and changed their verdict to, suicide induced by mental aberration. Because said they, with penetration, he said he was dead, and he was dead, and would he have told the truth if he had been in his right mind, no sir End of section one twenty nine